John chapter 6, verses 26 to 71. Jesus answered and answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. For on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. They said therefore to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. They said therefore to him, What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? (laughs) What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said therefore to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. The Jews therefore were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, is not this Jesus, the the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. As it is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught, they shall all be taught of God. Every one who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that any man has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews therefore began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus therefore said to them, truly, 
Truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats My flesh and drinks My blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For My flesh is true food, and My blood is true drink. He who eats My flesh and drinks My blood abides in Me, and I in Him. As the living Father sent Me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats Me, he also shall live because of Me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread shall live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you should behold the Son of Man ascending where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray Him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus said, therefore, to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Dear Father, as we once again consider this astounding passage, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts, uh, unplug our ears, Father, that, that we might hear from you about your Son. These are marvelous truths, Father. Make us hear them and change us. We pray it in his precious name. Amen. I looked it up yesterday online. You can believe everything you read online. And I learned that just three years ago in 2014, Burger King ditched their long-standing slogan, Have it your way. I guess there were too many people ordering peanut butter burgers and things like that. But in the, in the age of cookie-cutter food and assembly line service, that slogan had real traction for a long time. We all love to have things our way, right? That's what the people in this passage wanted. This morning we're doing a second pass through one of the most loaded passages in the New Testament. This is Jesus' first-hand declaration to a multitude of people who had been following Him around, and that declaration is all about what real life is and how people actually lay hold of that real life. From Jesus' perspective, this passage is simply His declaration of the truth. But from the perspective of His audience, this multitude, it's an argument. (laughs) 
a conflict between two radically different approaches to laying hold of life. On one side of that conflict is man's way, and on the other side is God's way. Man's way and God's way. My title for these few weeks that we're spending in this great passage is How People Miss Life and Stay Dead. Last week we saw two of the ways that people miss life and stay dead. The first is by confusing earthly provision with real life. The second is by trying to share credit with God for getting real life. This morning we're going to consider just one way that people miss life and stay dead that we observe in this passage, and that is by demanding to see so that they may believe. By demanding to see so that they may believe. This crowd of people had just witnessed the most compelling demonstration of divine power and authority that anyone had seen since the days of Moses. Tens of thousands of people, 5,000 were just the men, tens of thousands of people fed from two fish and five barley loaves with 12 basketfuls left over. But after Jesus' astounding miracle, the next day they found Him and they demanded another sign. In verse 30 they said, What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? They said, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven. These people are quoting Scripture to Jesus. Satan tried that and didn't get any traction. They're, they're trying it. You see what they're after here? See, they're still trying to get a meal out of Jesus. Actually, a whole lot of meals. <laughs> they're not just asking for a sign. They're asking for 40 years of signs. They're saying, in effect, okay, Jesus, you want us to believe in you? We believed in Moses. We followed him. Yeah, right. If you want us to believe you're something special, just one miraculous meal isn't going to cut it. Our fathers ate manna, bread from heaven, in the wilderness for 40 years. So what are you going to do for a sign that we may believe, that we may see and believe you? What? Work do you perform? It's going to have to be really good. Jesus knew that throughout their history, the Israelites had, <laughs> they had credited Moses for all the good stuff that happened and they had blamed him for all the bad stuff that happened. They kind of forgot that he was the ambassador of God. So Jesus said to them, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They decided not to dispute the Moses thing, but they they liked the idea of more bread. So they said, therefore, to him, verse 34, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. Doesn't have to be just 40 years. This is great, Jesus. Let's do this every day. But Jesus very decisively turns this entire discussion about bread to himself. 
not as the provider, but as the provision. Now, he's both, of course, but look at where he focuses the attention here. He tells this multitude what real food is. Verse 35, he said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But that's not what they wanted. They wanted more food. They didn't want a Savior King who would give them eternal spiritual life. What they wanted was more like a Burger King who would give them the good life their way right now and from now on. Sort of a fast food Savior. I've already talked about this point in the last couple of messages, so I won't camp out on it again, but I need to say again to the believers one more time, in our, the believers in our midst, our message to the world must not be about temporary provision from God. God cares about temporary provision. He promises to give it. But our message must be about real food, the food that ends spiritual hunger now and forever. It must be about real life, the untouchable life that is relationship with God now and forever through faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 36, Jesus comes back to this demand that the people have made to see, to see a greater miracle so they can believe. And what he says in verse 36 is one of the keys to this great chapter. Let me read it together with the verse just before it for context. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, you have seen me. Yet you do not believe. You have seen me. Yet you do not believe. They demanded to see a miracle. So they would know whether Jesus was worthy to be believed. But Jesus rebuked them. The miracle that he had just done the day before demonstrated his divine identity and his absolute sovereign authority over creation. It identified him as the true bread out of heaven, the Son of God. They had seen that compelling sign But more importantly, they were now seeing, looking upon the very Son of God and hearing His Word. Yet they did not believe in Him. Think back for a minute on some of the previous encounters in this Gospel in which a person actually recognized Jesus as the Christ. The Son of God. And and believed in Him. Not not just those who recognized that he was a great prophet or a great teacher or a great provider, but who believed the Father's testimony concerning his Son. What moved Andrew in chapter 1 from nervously asking Jesus the superficial question, where are you staying? To urgently seeking out his brother Simon and saying to him, we have found the Messiah. Well, what happened to him is that Andrew and John had spent an afternoon talking with Jesus. Not seeing miraculous works, but actually hearing from Jesus. What caused Philip to declare to Nathaniel, 
We have found him of whom Moses, yes, and the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. It wasn't that Philip got to see some great miracle. It was that Jesus called him to himself and then Philip spent some time talking with him. Hearing from him. What caused Nathaniel to go from skepticism about this man Jesus to saying directly to Jesus, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. What moved the Samaritan woman and the townspeople of Sychar to confess Jesus as the Christ, the Savior of the world? What moved the royal official to head back home believing that his son had been healed of a mortal illness without seeing that happen? What compelled each of them to believe was they heard from Jesus. It wasn't the signs Jesus did that persuaded these people to believe in him. It was the person that they met and the things that he told them. The signs were given to identify the person, but it is a genuine encounter with that person that compels belief in him. If you never get past the sign to behold and to hear the one to whom the sign points, the sign does you no good at all. In fact, the sign can get in the way. This multitude had the Son of God standing right in front of them and speaking to them, yet they did not believe. They were too consumed with looking for another sign. The beholding that turns unbelief to belief is not done with the physical eyes. Jesus said, you have seen me, yet you do not believe. They saw Jesus without seeing. They met Jesus without meeting. They beheld Jesus without beholding. That's because most of the people in that multitude were spiritually deaf and blind. Most of the people in any multitude will be spiritually deaf and blind. The way is narrow and few are those who enter by it. So how, how does a spiritually deaf, spiritually blind, spiritually dead person actually come to behold Jesus? To hear His Word and to believe in Him. Will more miracles do the trick? Will more compelling miracles do the trick? They will not. In Luke 16, at the very end of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man who's been cast into Hades asks Abraham to send Lazarus to warn the rest of his, the rich man's family so they won't end up where he now is. But Abraham said to him, your family, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. The man said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if a man is raised from the dead. When Jesus actually then did raise a man named Lazarus from the dead, what did the religious leaders at the Jerusalem temple do? What did the men who knew the words of Moses better than anybody do? They set about the formal plan to kill Jesus and 
Lazarus. The miracle worked great, right? And then, of course, Jesus raised himself from the dead and they still didn't believe. What keeps men from believing in Jesus Christ is never a lack of sufficient evidence. It's never a lack of sufficient evidence. At the end of the previous chapter of John, Jesus laid out five compelling witnesses that provide all the proof a man could ever require. And the witness, of course, that he had the most to say about in that passage is the witness of God's Word, the Scriptures given through the prophets. In John 5, verse 40, Jesus identified the real problem that's at the root of every excuse that men present for rejecting Jesus. He said, your problem is that you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. You are unwilling. There you have it. The demand of unbelievers to see more proof that Jesus is the real deal is a smokescreen. It's a dodge. The problem is never an insufficiency of compelling evidence. The problem is unwillingness to acknowledge the evidence that God has powerfully and compellingly given. All right, if that's the problem, what's the solution? Do we need to just demand that people open their eyes? That they believe the clear, compelling evidence that's right under their noses? Will that fix the problem? Should we do more research and gather better arguments and find better books to hand to unbelievers that will show their arguments to be unfounded? Will that fix the problem? Will that convince people to believe in Jesus? Not according to Jesus. If not, what will? What makes a lost, dead, spiritually deaf, spiritually blind person willing to come to Jesus, to truly behold Him, hear Him, believe in Him? In verse 29, right after the people asked Jesus, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Last week I did my best to make the case that that statement rules out any work that we do. But what I didn't make clear enough, I think, last week is that when Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent, what He's saying is, your belief is God's work, not man's. The only way a human being comes to believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior is by God's working, not by man's. I believe Jesus makes that crystal clear over and over right here in this chapter. Right after indicting the crowd in verse 36 with the words, you have seen me and yet do not believe, listen to what he says to them. All that the Father has, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Okay, so who actually comes to the Son in faith? 
those to whom those whom the Father has given to His Son. Who actually beholds the Son and believes in Him? Those whom the Father has given to the Son. Is it possible for a person to come to faith in Jesus if God the Father has not drawn him to that faith? Isn't there some sort of work around here that lets us be the initiator? Jesus answers that question, I believe, without equivocation right here in this passage. Not once, but at least twice. Listen to verses 44 and 45. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Which is first? The Father is the initiator. Now listen to verses 64 to 65. There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray Him. And He was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to Me unless it has been granted Him from the Father. I'm going to read just verse 44 and verse 65. One right after the other. Listen carefully to what Jesus is saying. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Is there anything unclear about those statements? Which comes first? Us coming to Jesus or God the Father drawing us to Jesus? Which comes first, us beholding and believing in Jesus or God the Father drawing us to Jesus? I know there are people on both sides of that question in this room. i got to preach it the way I see it, guys. And, And to me, this is not something that Jesus is leaving up for grabs. By the way, to whom is Jesus saying these things in this passage? To mature believers? I don't think there were any of those yet. His disciples certainly weren't mature believers. No, he's actually talking to unbelievers. He's talking to people that he said saw him, but did not believe in him. And he's talking to them about the sovereign choice and irresistible call of God the Father in the hearts of lost people, without which no man can come. To him. How many times have you heard Christians, even Christians who firmly believe in God's sovereign election and irresistible call, say that you definitely shouldn't talk about that stuff with unbelievers? Maybe we should give that some more thought since Jesus did talk about that stuff with unbelievers. I'm not saying our gospel presentation should lead with the doctrine of sovereign election. But over and over in this gospel, the appeal for men is to hear and believe, to behold and believe. The promise of eternal life is given to everyone who believes in Jesus. That's the appeal. That's the call that we give to men. But maybe there's a time to spell out to a person who's resistant to that call that the reason you intend to keep on praying for them is because no one comes to faith in Jesus 
unless God the Father draws them. That's why we pray. It's good to promise people that you're going to ask God to do that miraculous work and to acknowledge that He's the one that does it. Does this matter to you if you're already a believer? Does it really matter how you came to believe? Can't you just kind of leave that behind you? Well, it's important to get to application. We want to know what God would have us to do with the the amazing truths that He sets before us. Beloved, here's one of the most practical applications you'll ever hear. You ready? Pray for the lost. Think about it. Even the preaching of the Son of God was not sufficient to bring the people in this multitude to belief. You think your preaching will be? You think your words will be more persuasive than the words of the Son of God? You'll notice Jesus didn't say, no one can come to me until he hears me preach. He said, no one can come to me until, unless my Father draws him to me. The supply line and the life's blood of evangelism, beloved, is prayer. If you're not praying for the miraculous work of God in the hearts of your unsaved family members and co-workers and friends, you shouldn't be the least bit surprised if your efforts to tell them about Jesus don't go anywhere. If He does not draw them to behold and believe in Jesus, your words are wasted. You're just an instrument. If you take the musician away, the instrument just sits there. If it tries to play itself, you really got some noise. If you meet a person at a store or a bus stop or a doctor's waiting room and you get nudged by the Holy Spirit to talk to them, which I hope happens about Jesus, take a moment to talk to God about that person. See, God desires your dependence, not your eloquence. He doesn't need your eloquence. He doesn't need your great arguments. He needs your dependence on the Lord of the harvest. Those words are pointed at me as surely as they are at you. This week I realized I have spent far more time lamenting the unbelief of certain people that I care about than I have spent praying that God would miraculously turn their hearts to Christ. That has to stop. That needs to be flipped around 180 degrees. And I'd ask you to pray for me that that would happen. I'll pray for you the same. All right, so God does the drawing. He's the Lord of the harvest. He's the one who plucks people out of the darkness. He's the one who opens the ears of men, women, and children to hear Jesus. He's the one who imparts the faith that brings them to eternal life. How does He do that? What means does He use? Does He tell us? He certainly tells us something about the means that he uses. Listen again to verses 44 and 45. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. By the way, he says that four times in this passage. I will raise him up on the last day. And he says, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Who? 
Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. See, all of those who come to Jesus have first heard and learned from the Father. I've already pointed out the connection between this passage in John and Isaiah 55, and I'm going to do that again. At the beginning of Isaiah 55, right after God calls men to come and buy real food and living water without money and without cost, He says to them, Incline your ear and come to Me. Listen that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. He says, listen to Me that you may live. He's the one who makes that happen. But here's my question. Which is more powerful in the hands of God to draw a man to faith in Jesus? A sensational miracle or the Word of God? God says, listen to Me that you may live. He doesn't say, watch what I do. He says, listen to Me. The watching, the miracle is supposed to get our attention and point us to Christ. As It's to identify Christ. To show us who we're dealing with. But the miracle won't tell us how to be saved, will it? He does. Beloved, God's Word is more powerful than sensational miracles. Don't ever doubt that. In fact, His Word is a miracle. We need to know how marvelously we've been armed by God to rescue the souls of lost people from the enemy. The Samaritans in chapter 4 didn't get to see a sensational miracle from Jesus, yet many of them came to faith. Here's how God brought them to faith by John's own words. John 4, verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking Him to stay with them, and He stayed there two days. And many more believed because of His Word. And they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. The world says seeing is believing. The world keeps demanding more stuff to see so that they may believe. That's what the people in this chapter were doing. They say, show us a better miracle. Then maybe we'll believe. But Jesus takes that fatally flawed view of things and He turns it right side up. Beloved, hearing is believing and believing is seeing. And none of that happens without God. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every miracle that God shows him. No, I don't think that's it. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The Samaritans believed because of his word. The royal official believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And then he headed home to see his son, whom he now knew Jesus had healed. Then he got to see. Hearing is believing and believing is seeing. All right, so how do unbelievers encounter Jesus? How do they see Jesus? Well, you and I can't take a person by the hand the way Andrew did with Simon and introduce that person face-to-face with Jesus. 
Does that put us and that person at a disadvantage? Well, if this was just another book, it would. The author of this book comes with every edition. In every language. He's right here with us every time we tell other people what He has proclaimed about His Son from cover to cover in this book. Beloved, God has spoken. And He has energized His Word with the Holy Spirit and that Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to discern the innermost thoughts of the heart. When God speaks through His Word to the heart of a man, that Word demands belief. When the resurrected Jesus said to Thomas, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed, He wasn't saying, Blessed are those who don't need any evidence. He was saying, Blessed are those who have heard and believed the compelling, overwhelming witness of God the Father to His Son and who need no other evidence. When Jesus said, O wicked generation that longs for a sign, that's what He was talking about. They'd already been given the witness of the Father. That makes our role in advancing His kingdom on earth very straightforward. Preach the Word. His Word. And above all, pray for His miraculous work in the hearts of people. And then, Live the Word. Adorn the Word. Adorn the proclamation. If God determines to do a visible miracle or to give a person a special vision or dream to draw that person to Christ, that's His business. Our business, our assignment by His enablement is to pray for lost men and women to proclaim His witness to them and to adorn that proclamation with lives that honor Him. You got it? That's our assignment. And He's the one who empowers that assignment. We don't have to look in here. We just trust Him. You and I who believe have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, how do I live it? I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. That's all I need. I need to trust Him. And step out on that faith because He's got it. How do we as believers encounter Jesus now? Is it likely that you'll get to have a face-to-face conversation with Jesus in the flesh before you die? Well, if He comes back, maybe, before you die. Otherwise, probably not. Does that put you at a disadvantage Are you and I doomed to a lesser kind of faith than the disciples had because we don't get to actually see Jesus with our physical eyes and touch Him and talk to Him face to face? Have we been shortchanged? Well, if this was just another book, that might be the case. But it's not. It's the Word about Christ and it's the Word of Christ It's where we go to meet our glorious Savior and Master every day. So, come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come. Buy 
and eat without money and without cost. Incline your ear. Listen that you may live. I'm going to close by reading the remaining verses of Isaiah 55. And as I do, I want you to listen carefully for what God says about His ways and our ways. His thoughts and our thoughts. I want you to listen carefully to what He says about the irresistible power of His Word. And finally, at the end of the passage, I want you to listen carefully for the glorious promise that He gives to those whose thoughts and ways get replaced by His. Three things. Listen for the dramatic contrast between His ways and ours, the power of His Word, and the promise to those who are changed by it. Isaiah 55, starting at verse 6. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts and let him return to the Lord. And he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. And it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. Dear Father, we ask that you would proclaim through us your incomparable word concerning your Son to the lost people all around us. We know that that means you have to draw them to faith, Father, or it will be pointless. We pray that you would draw many to believe in him by the work of your Spirit through your proclaimed word. And we ask that you would draw us daily to the fountain of life that we might sit at the feet of Jesus and listen and receive life. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.